Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like I'm on fire. <laughs> and I'm feeling <laughs> like I'm on fire because I'm currently walking on the boardwalks of Fire Island on the south shore of Long Island in New York, which weirdly... A few weeks ago, Russell Tovey actually walked those boardwalks himself, didn't he? I did walk those boardwalks myself, and I actually saw the artist we are going to be talking to today on the beach of Fire Island. This is just too circular and mm-hmm. too meant to be. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those synchronized moments. What do the Uri Geller used to call it? Synchronicity. I've actually, uh, the reason I'm a fictional character is because, partly because our guest today, his work often has kind of a fictional element to it, although it's from kind of lived experience, authentic experience. Um, it's not because I'm just really fake. Uh, it's actually because I'm very Are you sure. <laughs> well, you've been talking about it all day on our WhatsApp chats, calling me fake. Uh, but, or I was calling you fake. You someone was actually, was calling yeah. someone fake. Yeah. But it's also because... I've never been to Fire Island. And for me, it's just like a kind of imaginary space, which is Mm. quite interesting because the work of today's guest um, kind of encourages that imagination to run wild. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, one of our favorite painters, Kyle Caniglio. Hi, Kyle. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Lovely introduction. Thank you. You're very welcome. Finally, we we get to do this. I feel like this has been something we've been meaning to do for about two years. So I'm really thrilled we're finally getting to have a chat with you. I've been listening to this podcast for a few years, so... I'm excited to be on it. We always love that. We always yeah. love that. And But I guarantee at the end you're going to be surprised like, oh, yeah, I didn't remember that you were asked oh, my favorite color. So many people who listen to it get completely <laughs> caught out at the end. Where do we find you in the world right now, Kyle? Right now, I'm actually at my aunt's house in the suburbs of North Jersey, uh, about a half hour from where I grew up. And you live and work in New Jersey in, a, in an area called Hoboken, right? Yeah, so I've lived in Hoboken for nine years. Uh, I've had a studio there for 10 years now. Uh, Hoboken is right on the other side of the Hudson River from Manhattan. So actually, if you're in the new Whitney building, it overlooks Hoboken. And right next to Hoboken is Jersey City. And we have our own subway train, actually, that goes into Manhattan. But it's powered through NJ Transit, so it's called the PATH train. Really consider ourselves a sixth borough of Manhattan. 
That's and really you're funny because dis- I've always wanted to go to Hoboken and I didn't understand. It it's sounds like somewhere really far away. Yeah. Why it's did not. you? It's really why close. do you want to go there? <laughs> I don't know. It's like the name. I, we, I've always thought it sounds quite sort of romantic or something. Hoboken. I don't know. I like yeah. it. Yeah. It has a big mob history, and Frank Sinatra is from Hoboken. So that's the town is very much obsessed with that kind of time period. Is there a lot of like Sinatra ephemera and paraphernalia everywhere you go? Yes, uh, it's a lot. Can you sing his songs? Maybe if I'm alone in the shower, but... <laughs> yeah. Are you from that area? What, why, why is it that you've gravitated towards there? And obviously you, you're describing how close in proximity you are to Manhattan, but what, what is it about New Jersey and Hoboken? Well, I grew up in North Jersey. So when I finished graduate school, I went back and lived home for a year, but I needed a studio so that I could keep working. And so I was able to drive to Hoboken and get a studio there. And, you know, it's accessible to Manhattan. So if people wanted to come in for studio visits, you know, I had this little outpost where I could make work. And then eventually I moved there. Also, right after school, I started teaching immediately in North Jersey. I no longer teach. I finished teaching about a year ago, but uh, I did it for about nine years. And the schools I was teaching at, you know, I had to drive to them. So Hoboken made sense for me. Is it a good thing to not be teaching anymore? Yeah. I, it's, Why? It's, Why? Well, I'm just focusing full time on painting now. But I feel like I, I got a lot from the years that I did teach. I felt like it helped make me uh, a better artist. I feel like the pandemic for you was really interesting because a lot of people started to catch on to your work during that time, which seems quite odd because you weren't necessarily exhibiting as much as you would have been before. But like, for example, I actually bought a painting of yours and like sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, and we we did it literally through like PayPal and uh, UPS or something. And you literally like wrapped it up in bubble wrap and then shipped it over to me in cardboard. And to this day, I live with it every day and I see it all the time. And it's a really small kind of square painting of a scene at night. And it's purple and kind of very dreamy like your work can be. But I loved it because it has a sense of the solar system within it and kind of like falling in love and like that kind of romance and emotional narratives. Um, can you speak a bit about how the internet and like you know, it's so strange because we've never even met. And like, you know, I, I love your work and I know you and I feel like we have little chats and it's so strange, isn't it? That, that you can have a career now like that. I just love it. Yeah. I mean, Instagram has been really instrumental in kind of helping me out with my career. I think actually became something that kind of energized me because I feel like you start putting your work up there and then other artists will reach out to you or be like, oh, I love this or something. And it's it can kind of give you the little confidence boost that you need sometimes. But yeah, I feel like the pandemic, there was a shift that happened. And, and you know, just putting my work out there more on Instagram was a part of that. But also just personally going into the pandemic, I was in a certain place mentally and emotionally. And then the beginning of the pandemic really wasn't great for me. I mean, it wasn't great for really anybody, but um, being alone all day inside really was eating at me. I, I was definitely in a depression at that point. Then the summer came around, all of a sudden, things start opening up and you can be outside and you can be with your friends again. And I realized, you know, this thing is going to end at a certain point and the world's going to open up. And how do I want to meet that newly opened world? How, how do I want to show up in that newly opened world? And I really wanted to put my studio practice forward and really 
dive into that. And I had more time to do that in the pandemic with everything, all the distractions going away. I felt like it really helped me get my priorities straight and really reflect on what I want. Things kind of snowball. You know, one person sees your work, like it, then they share it with their friends and then they like it and then they share it with their friends. Um, things can kind of ripple out that way. Absolutely. So, I also think yeah. you're part of a... Um... Uh, a kind of movement, you know, at the start of the pandemic, there was a re- and pre-pandemic, there was a real growth of figurative art, but especially with a queer narrative, which throughout history, queer art has sort of been sidelined as not being the mainstream. And mm. we've seen in the last, I think, six, five, six years, really, really recently, that it has come to the forefront and it mm. is being curatorially considered and there are museum collections acquiring queer art, and that narrative is suddenly, you know, imperative and at the forefront. And you are part of this movement of artists that have made that change happen, which feels, from an audience's point of view, from my and Rob's point of view, and, and the listeners, such an incredible privileged position to be in, but also really important um, and historical. Do you feel? And what was that like to be part of that growth and feel that? Could you actually feel it? And did you discuss it as a, a group of contemporary artists among your, amongst your peers? I, I think it's hard when you're in something, really understand what's going on. I think maybe in a few years from now, I could look back and, and be able to talk about it more eloquently. But I, I think, I, I mean, we're, I feel like we're still very much in it. I'm really inspired by a lot of the work that a lot of these queer painters are, are making. I feel like it's really energized me and it feels like I'm able to be in conversation with other people, right? So it, it's like, I'm not just making this alone for just myself, right? I feel like I'm also making this because I'm inspired to, to sort of speak back to something, you know, some, one of my peers is doing. Uh, and that's that's really exciting. But I think it also kind of happened at a time when we all just kind of finished up school. So we're so, when you leave school, you're, you're so freaked and you're just trying to, you know, get to the next show and the next show, or, you know, you're in survival mode kind of, but there has been enough time where I can say, you know, 10 years ago, uh, I finished grad school. Like you, you couldn't have in a painting and have it be shown really. And now you can, but it, it, it just, it felt even just like surprising then it was like only 10 years ago. And that was like two sort of risque um, for the art world. Yeah, so you were at um, Yale. You studied at Yale, and in, in your year was another trailblazer of uh, the movement, Doron Langberg, who's become a good friend of yours, who I saw you yeah. with on the beach in Fire Island. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. yeah. They were both there, lying there Aww. naked, enjoying the sunshine in the uh, <laughs> utopia that is uh, Fire Island, and I disturbed that by walking past. We uh, did not expect to see you at all. <laughs> I didn't expect to be there either. It was like noon on a Friday. No one was on the beach. Like him and I were just like, you know, hanging out. Dicks out, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can be <laughs> n- It's heaven. You can be nude there, you know. It is. I mean, but, well, let's, let's talk about Fire Island then. What What is Fire Island to you and why is it so important for your work because it feels like it is such a huge theme as a destination but as an inspiration as well for your images you know i feel like fire island is the sleepover you never got to go to as a kid as a a gay kid um your 
it's just this magical place that feels very removed from society because first of all, it's hard to get to. Uh, you have to take a boat there. There's no roads on the island. So there's no cars, right? So just even the sound of the island is different. Um, but it's populated essentially entirely by queers. So it, the space is just so different than any space I've ever been in. And you for typically you're in a house with all these other people, right? You're not really there alone. It's a very social place. And there's obviously like a, a real sexuality to the place and, and um, people are very sexually free there. And that's great. But I feel like what is really reigning supreme in Fire Island are your queer friendships, because those are the people you're in the house with. Those are the people you're dancing with. Those are the people you're on the beach with. And those are the people that you create the real memories with. So it's powerful because of that for me. But it's also an interesting place because you feel really absorbed into the natural world. Uh, there's a really specific aesthetic there. Like you're walking around on these boardwalks that are just this raw wood. Um, all of the houses are this, like for the most part, all of them are like a modernist style architecture where the wood is left exposed. Uh, they, they let in a lot of light. Um, there's a lot of just trees and even the deer, because there's no vehicles, the deer aren't afraid of people. So they just slowly kind of walk around the island. So it does feel really otherworldly and magical. And then people wear People can be whoever they want there, you know, um, people wear whatever they want, including nothing. Um, and I, yeah, people are constantly like dressing and undressing. I mean, there's like towels and clothes and fabric just draped all over the place. Uh, the light is gorgeous and it feels almost like you're in a fictional place. So it became a really great kind of platform to think about as a setting for my paintings. Because uh, a lot of those things that I just mentioned are things that you know are important elements to me in my work. And also that kind of like timelessness and uh, that dream of the space that, that summer can create. And I feel like, especially living in the UK, you have these different seasons, which because um, of global warming are getting more extreme all the time. So we're actually getting proper summers now where it's really hot. And there's that feeling, isn't there, of freedom and like also a kind of melancholy that happens at the end of summer. And I'm already experiencing it now, even though we're in the middle of summer, I'm beginning to feel sad, but like it's going to end. And I love this idea of queerdom within a location, you know, like in Fire Island, this idea of like some kind of queer community because it's predominantly queer. And then also these these unique strong bonds between the people there, like you were talking about, between the LGBTQ plus community there. But also the other side of it, that it brings up these kind of like more negative traits or things like um, loneliness or not feeling good enough or rejection, which is such a common theme between my gay friends, even here in Margate. I was talking to my friend Sophie today about why we all feel rejection so badly. But like the idea that you go on a holiday and then suddenly you're made to face all those emotions too. I can imagine it becomes such rich um, fodder in a way for the paintings to be born out of. Yeah, it's, it's a very high stakes place, right? Everyone goes out there with these intentions of it's going to be this really specific thing and um, it's going to be, you know, the best parties and the best sex and you're going to make the best friends. And, and that doesn't always happen. Like more often than not, actually, it does not happen. So 
you can absolutely feel lonely or you could be like, oh, I've been, I've been going to the gym, you know, I'm, I'm ready for summer. And then you get there and then you're naked on the beach and then you're like, okay, like there, you know, you you can kind of feel, um, like grotesque or something compared to some of these like trophy bodies parading around. Um, yeah, so it it can definitely be, I, I just feel like in general, emotions there are turned up you know there's a lot of fully saturated emotions going on in that place and definitely rejection can happen but all these mixed emotions then become the characters within the narrative of your work so we're we're talking about like connectivity between friends and an abundance of sex and an abundance of uh queer uh friendships or queer potential friendships to come up and then yes the insecurities you get and the shame and you know the rejection for you then, do your paintings, do they become therapy in a way to exercise these feelings? Because you, you feel like someone who has a lot of feelings, as we all do, but it feels like you use your paintings to really place them um, within a narrative of this world that you've created. I definitely have a lot of feelings. <laughs> um, and I, I think that painting for me... I really, what drives a lot of the the images is some kind of emotional narrative. And I like to think of them as fictional because I feel like fiction creates an opportunity for empathy. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of my ideas will start with a sort of emotional experience that's informed by my real life, um, especially earlier on in my work from maybe 10 years ago or mm-hmm. when I first came out, I feel like there were a lot of experiences I was having for the first time that I didn't have the language to really process, but through painting, I was able to sort of make a painting about what it felt like to all of a sudden realize that you have sexual potential, you know, which is something that happened the first time I went into a gay bar um, or the kind of awkwardness of, of coming out or changing your relationship to your body now that you're being honest about what you actually want to do with your body. Mm. So definitely there have been times, like even like when my, like my mother passed away when I was in college and I was painting these like landscapes and then I was filling them with just debris and broken things. And I didn't realize that at the time, but really that was about my world kind of falling apart and rearranging. So there's definitely been a, a, a history of me sort of processing life events through painting for sure did the figure start to appear the 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 male figure because predominantly every figure in your works is male and i assume you they're queer as well we're allowed to project a queerness onto all of them so prior to you coming out were there queer male figures looking back in your work i feel like i came out via painting before i came out in my actual life. So yeah, I was, I was painting these landscapes where I was sort of avoiding the figure. Um, and then after, after my mom passed, then the figure started creeping back in. And that's when I kind of was getting ready to come out. And I sort of like tested the waters by like putting something kind of gay in a painting first and then doing it again. There's this one, there's this one painting where there's just in the corner, there's just like two guys having sex, like in the woods, <laughs> but it's like really small, you know, it's like maybe like two square inches or something and like a 48 inch painting. 
So it's like a Where's Wally or Where's Waldo for uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> queer where's, yeah. Where's, where, where is the queer sex <laughs> in this painting? Yeah, exactly. Um, Find the queer yeah. sex in this painting. But so you you said earlier on, which I just found really interesting, is that fiction creates empathy. What does what does that mean? What do you mean, like being able to show fiction? You're able to show allow an empathy into the work. I think that with a fiction, uh, someone's just taking in the information that they're being given. And, you know, whereas with nonfiction, it's really about the specificity of the person, the time they're living in, you know, who they are, what have they specifically been through. And it really becomes about that specific narrative and, and learning about that them. Um, I think when someone understands something is fictional, maybe they can get to the point a little quicker or it's just more accessible to somebody. I mean, nonfiction can absolutely still create opportunities for empathy. I just think fiction can get to the point a little quicker. Like if you think about Pixar movies, like they're kind of had this reputation at this point for making people cry. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, these are animated, just like little blobs of characters, mm -hmm. but they're experiencing, you know, grief or all these things. And then you're like <laughs> crying your eyes out, you know? So empathy is, is a big energy that you want to channel because it feels like, and I think you've mentioned this, that these figures that you have, which I feel like is quite unique to you, is that the, you want the audience to interact with them. You're, there's no voyeurism, really, even though we're seeing them, but it's like, it's like you've described them as running into an old friend or a new acquaintance. When you come up to one of your works, it's like you want an audience to interact with these characters not in a like seeing them from a distance, but they're they're your new friend. They're someone that you can create a relationship or a friendship with, whatever that may be. And that empathy and that uh, I guess it's quite a vulnerable position you're putting your characters into because as an audience, we could, you know, reject them. We could embrace them, but we could also be like, I don't want to look at you. I don't want to be around you. And these elements are really important to you as an artist? Yeah, I think about the fact that a person will be looking at the painting and I want the figures in the painting, especially if it's, if it's a painting of just one figure, uh, I want that figure to somehow relate to the viewer. So often they're just looking out at them um, and mm. they're, you know, trying to connect, right? I mean, painting is a way for me to, to not just create a visual experience, but also communicate something, right? So the visual experience is this entry point to this opportunity for empathy of some kind. Um, so, and vulnerability is something I think about a lot. Uh, I really think about creating images of men that feel vulnerable because in art history, it's typically the female figure that's portrayed as, as vulnerable. So I'm interested in kind mm. of playing with that. You know, there's there's a side to your work as well, which I haven't really seen that often, which um, is kind of uh, observing groups, that almost like a brotherhood in a sense, like a kind of friendship between queer friends, maybe like watching a film or even gaming. And gaming is something that you can associate with all kinds of things like escapism or freedom or um creating new worlds even and the expansion of imagination but there's also the kind of geeky nerdy kind of side but recently on a dating app i noticed there's this trend for kind of 
gay guys who want to like game together mm-hmm. almost like in a sexual way or but something. with a y gamers oh yeah exactly yeah. gamers yeah. exactly yeah. which i is new to me because i'm obviously 41 and ancient now yeah, but, uh, lady, yeah. but 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 it seems to be there's this kind of um bonding thing within queerdom now of like gaming together and you know comp- playing computer games and you've made some amazing paintings particularly when you were studying um of like the computer itself or the screen and then also the other view like as if the tv is watching the group of guys and it's something you would never really document necessarily because they're those very intimate private moments like on a friday night or something when everyone goes around and has a beer and that kind of thing can you talk a bit about that body of work well i think i'm i've always been interested in group scenes and what i call like the homo social uh, personally, like I feel most connected to my gayness when I'm around a group of gays, um, more so than I'm if I'm just with one. Um, and I think there is kind of an interesting dynamic that happens. And also it, it gives me an opportunity to play with different characters who are kind of having maybe different emotional experiences. Uh, so th- they can also be really loving um, and also can kind of be also maybe sexually charged. And I like not having to define them as one or the other. And especially if I, I'm with some friends and there's maybe seven of us laying around watching a movie, like straight people our age don't aren't really doing that. Like I just look at like, okay, like there's like eight guys in this house and we're like li- living on the beach together and you know we're like watching a movie tonight um and maybe we're kind of laying on one another or there's just kind of a, a comfortable sense of home between all of us and that's something that i think is really unique and it's something that i i want to celebrate so i put it in a painting well i was saying when you look at these figures as well they they are all collectively sharing a space but when you look at their faces their faces will feel the same as if you're using the same model for each of these characters that are populating these scenes is that is that a right observation or is that something so, uh, I'm missing? Yeah, well yeah i mean for the there were two in the solo show that i just had uh mm-hmm. with tamor grane mm-hmm. uh and for those i i did have the same person pose for for every every figure um, what does that but give I, you I, well, he was available. I mean, I, I basically, but I, I will, I invent the faces though when I, when I do that. So the faces are all invented. However, I really learned how to paint faces by painting my own face. So when I kind of invent a face, the way that I know how to make a face, it always ends up kind of looking like some version of me. Um, but then I think that's sort of interesting, like a room full of different versions of myself um, can mm. kind of open it up to maybe a, another kind of narrative. Mm. Well, totally, because it, again, that plays into, it is a group scene, it is a social scene, but yet with all the same faces, there's almost like an isolation or a loneliness because you are every character there. So you aren't really existing with other people. It's all different versions of yourself. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I, it, it could be, I don't totally think of it that way, um, but it, Yeah. It's open to interpretation. Um, There's something also about the way your bodies are formed that always makes me think of like bread or like a doughy kind of like (laughs) clay or something and and a bit like a bakery. And I know you've made works referencing like 
baking a bit, but 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 there is something about even in some of the most recent work, just in the faces, it's re- they're they're really they are otherworldly, which I think adds to the dream like timeless kind of you know there's so, there's a softness, isn't there? curvy yeah, softness which, or like does, doughy you're right yeah I, I know you look a lot at like baroque and rococo and mannerist and you, you list like numerous numerous art, art historical references is, is are some of those historical things playing into that or is it you know more contemporary? absolutely yeah so i've uh, i love basically every everything in the in the musée d'orsay right like mm. just put that in a blender and i'll drink it um <laughs> but i I've done a lot of, um, like, I love Francois Boucher. Mm-hmm. He was a Rococo painter. Mm. And the figures were always very curvy and, and juicy. Or even, the like, a Rubens, the figures. Mm. There's so much flesh, right? Yes, They're not these yeah. chiseled, muscly bodies. Mm. And they're, they're, you really get a sense of volume when you look at them. Oh. So I think about the figure as a volume, really. And I think a softer body is a little more of a vulnerable body, which also interests me. Um, and also me, myself, you know, my relationship with my body. Like at, at one point when I was in college, like I was 265 pounds, you know. So I like the idea of having a doughy body has definitely been in my mind. Um, and I, I think the little painting that you referenced, Rob, is like, I was thinking about, I made this painting of like this, this like pizza making. Um, and this guy was like holding this dough and his stomach was like pizza dough. Um, and it was this like weird body dysmorphia pizza painting. I think maybe that's why I relate so hard with these works because I've got that kind of body too. And like, I think in the gay world, you're often made to feel so excluded because you haven't got the hard edged, you know, super lean muscular physique that people can be quite militant about and there's often kind of like i've had people say to me like why would i fancy you i was talking a lot lot this afternoon about it it's quite like um aggressive sometimes and that's why i find your paintings so like a solace almost when i'm looking at them because there is a kind of kindness within it as well and a reality i think of like real bodies yeah and i i i think there's enough artists who have made work about gorgeous physiques i don't really think we need more right now so (laughs) uh so we've had enough um and yeah i'm not interested in making work that is glorifying a body or that even is heroic you know i want Mm -hmm. that that real that vulnerable that softer body (laughs) what about um altered states and like smoking is a theme within the work it kind of runs through but also the idea of getting high some of my favorite portraits were those early ones like the blue one that i really wanted to get um where people are like really stoned and floating and almost like on a cloud you can like ride that cloud just by looking at the picture uh yeah i feel like there's a few (laughs) answers to that but there's all these paintings of in history of just like a figure laying around you know and it's kind of like well what are they doing you know like why are they laying around and i was like well maybe they're maybe they're stoned (laughs) like maybe they're just couch locked in this painting forever 
um, just thinking about stuff. <laughs> um, and I also think, you know, smoking it can kind of like slow you down. It can kind of shift your perception of things and mm-hmm. you can, you know, become a little more visually sensitive. Um, and there, yeah, it becomes an altered state. And I really want to make paintings that slow people down. And I want to make paintings that have a certain quietness to them and that give you a certain kind of visual experience. So in that way, um, I think like smoking just became an, an apt platform for the kinds of paintings that I wanted to make. Mm. Yeah. Being visually sensitive and you're talking about slowing people down, it leads me on to, so we, we talked about the figures that populate your paintings, but the thing that's really striking about your work is the hues, is the luminosity, is the color of the paint that you use. You create a vibe or a mood through your color choices where the palette kind of in, an, in a sort of monochrome way uh, creates the ambience of the world you're depicting. And especially you're talking about you want people to slow people down. There's a, there's a certain work that was in the last show which was kind of all, all black. And from a distance, it looked like the monochrome. And then when you got up close, it then revealed itself more. And it made people um, slow down and take time and work it out. And there was an interesting thing you said about this is that it could be a metaphor for shyness. The painting isn't front and center. The painting isn't going, look at me, look at me. It's mm-hmm. going, take time with me like allow me to reveal myself slowly to you and that really fascinated me the the color theory i guess that you are using in your practice yeah so that that black painting uh it was the second black painting i'd made and i actually have a gigantic one in my studio now uh and it was really based on an ad reinhardt painting right so he made a series of black paintings and it's one of those paintings where, you know, you see it from across the room in a museum and you're kind of like, okay, it's a black rectangle. Like, give me a break. Right. It's like, it's one of those paintings people love to sort of gawk at and be like, Oh, my kid could do that. But then you, you walk up to it. If you choose to walk up to it and you notice that it's not just all one black, you start to notice, Oh, there's two blacks. And then you, you notice, Oh, there's, eight blacks and it unfolds really slowly. So it requires Mm. a generous viewer. And I felt like just that alone as a visual experience was a great metaphor for shyness. So Mm. I thought, okay, that's an interesting way to kind of create a character and work with, with that visual experience to tell the story of this character. So that painting, even though I'm not actually really a super shy person, but sometimes I I, I can be, um, was very much a self-portrait. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, really? Ed Reinhardt was, was an abstract painter who was active in New York for more than three decades, uh, born in Buffalo, New York, 1913, died in 1967 in Manhattan, and has sort of been uh, there alongside Barnett Newman, Clifford Steele. He's part of that real movement that was uh, happening with uh, American abstract artists uh, post-war. And um, amazing that his work, which is so monochrome, can inspire a figurative work in you. But how do you decide on the hues that are going through the other works? Because we see works that are red and blue and green, and they're really luminous. They're almost glowing 
in, in the way, and I guess you have had comparisons with Lisa Yuskavage, the way that Lisa chooses uh, tonally how to set a mood or a vibe in her works. How do you decide and do you know when you go into a work that, that this certain colour is going to be the theme you're going to work on for that specific piece? Yes. So typically there there's always a specific kind of color space that I'm thinking about right from the get-go with the painting. Just like I'm thinking about a certain emotional narrative, I'm also, that comes in tandem with thinking about a, a color space. And at this point, it there's these certain kinds of times of day or sensations of light or color spaces that I just keep returning to. And it seems like I, I, I have a feeling I'll probably keep returning to them for a very long time. So one of them is thinking about just a, like a very, very hot day, like a bright, sunny, humid summer day where you sort of can't escape the heat. You know, the light is bouncing everywhere. Maybe it feels a little nostalgic. Like, can you make a painting that feels humid? Um, that's something, you know, I think about... Uh, there's this blue kind of space where it's informed by the light of a TV. And that's also sort of morphed into this ghost character, sort of like the ghost and poltergeist that comes out of the TV. And is it's like, feels like it's made of this TV light. Uh, that's something I, I go back to. There's this sort of purple night sky, which Rob, you have really yes. like the first iteration of, of that. But I, I think about how color can dramatize an image. So I think going kind of over the top, like this is going to be very blue or this is going to be very red, is sort of a camp gesture to, to approach color with. Uh, there's this, so I, I went on a date with a guy who's like in the musical theater world years ago. And I, we, we were talking and he was saying to me, you know, in a musical, when the characters break out into song, it's not arbitrary. It's because there is some kind of emotional circumstance that's happening where plain language is inadequate to communicate what's really happening. And so because of that, they have to break out in, into song to more accurately give the audience an idea of what is really happening. And... I, I kind of thought, oh, wow, that's sort of how I think about painting. And color for me is a way to kind of be over the top and, and theatrical. Um, he didn't want to go on another date with me, but I got that, that little sound. That's all you him. needed. That was what that moment yeah. was for. Yeah. You then got sunflower yellow in a painting. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. my favorite color. In was he a good singer? Could he actually sing or... You know, he was actually, a, he actually taught at a university. So he wasn't like a, an actual performer. He was more on the, I don't know, like a critic or something. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. <laughs> you spent time doing a number of different kind of, not courses, but like programs, I guess you call them, where you've been supported in the art world. I know one of them was like a queer kind of mentorship, but you've also done one in Rome. Um, what was it like going to Rome? Did that have a big impact on the work? Yeah, Rome was amazing. So when I finished Yale, they choose two students to go to the American Academy in Rome for a month. So I was chosen and I went the summer right after graduating. So it was the summer, it was exactly 10 years ago. So summer Mm -hmm. of 2012. And it was my first time ever being in Europe. Uh, So that was a big deal. And there, I mean, I was, and I, I was obsessed with Caravaggio and I mean, I still, you know, I, I love Caravaggio, but I really like, you really get to see like all of them in Rome. So it, you, I was just taking in so many mind blowing paintings and then the light there was incredible. That place is, I mean, have you ever been there to the American Yeah, 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 yeah. It's sure. around a corner and there's a masterpiece yeah. or in the back of a church somewhere there's suddenly there'd be. Like a, a, a Vermeer just sort of there propped up <laughs> on a wall <laughs> and you're like, this doesn't make sense. It is and you're mad. right about the light, but the Pantheon and stuff, it's all about mm. harnessing or finding the light and, and making it uh, a feature or a destination. Yeah. You can really play a game there as well where you literally like go into any church, <laughs> anywhere. And just like see what you find. You literally like every, even the smallest ones. They have masterpieces in them. And um, I saw a Caravaggio whole like retrospective there when I was there, and it was just like, oh my god, next level. What is it to be a, a fellow of the of a queer art mentorship? Then what does that what does that yeah. bring you? So that program, what they do is they pair you with like an older, more established artist, and they function as a mentor. I mean, the idea behind the program is that there's this generational gap because of, of AIDS. So it's, it's about like really making sure that a new generation is uh, in communication with an older generation uh, and they're there to provide support and guidance. So you work with somebody for a year and you meet with them monthly. And also the other people who are doing the fellowship, uh, you, you meet up with them on a monthly basis and discuss what you're working on and, and give each other feedback. And it's really about just, just a community uh, building thing. Who was the you artist know, that you were paired with? I worked with an artist uh, named Jeff Chadsey. He shows with Jack Shaman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's great. I mean, he, he makes these insane drawings. Um, they're really wild. I, I love his work. I don't know if you know who he is. I don't know. We're going to look it uh, up. I don't either, yeah, he's worth will. looking up. we need up. to interview him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds Maybe. great. Well, what about yeah. drawing for you then? Did that inspire your drawing? Because I saw some photos recently of some of your sketchbooks and works on paper, which I actually hadn't seen before researching this interview. I was really excited to see them. Yeah, I, I definitely paint way more than I draw. And most of my sketches are really crude, just to think mm. about the way I want to compose something in, in a painting. 
But I do feel like I learned a lot about drawing through kind of looking at old master drawings. So like an exercise that I gave myself was I was taking Boucher drawings and I was copying them, but I was changing them from a woman into a man and maybe changing the setting that they were in, sort of making them my own. I don't know. I like drawing, but I would always just rather be painting. And I feel like I got yelled at in grad school because of that a lot. Really? Yeah. They, they want like, to see the draw workings. more. Right, right, right. Yeah. To, to mark like, you on, on the process of, of making a piece of art. Yeah, like the yeah. kind of skill of drawing or something. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, they also were just like, they can be really specific in that program and can harp on certain things. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, you were, you were uh, referencing somebody's actual face in the recent work because they were around. Um, do you also use photography? Like, cause I've, I've heard mention of Polaroids and obviously the way the kind of effect of your paintings, they often have that element almost of like a snapshot or an older photograph or not sepia, but you know, a kind of a, a different time. Um, can you talk about photography? Does it have a role? Yeah. So photography, I do work from photographs and what I do is I think about photography as a sketching process, really. Like I'll take like over a hundred photos for one painting, just playing with slight variations in the pose. Um, you know, what if it's a little like this? What if it's a little like that? Mm. So they're really there as an anatomy reference for me. Uh, cause I can't just once a figure goes beyond a certain scale, I can't just create it out of thin air. Um, and, and I can paint with much quicker and with more clarity if there's a solid reference for me. Mm-hmm. But I do work from a black and white photo always, and I completely invent the color. And right. typically before I make a painting, I'll make a color study, actually. Uh, so I have all these small little paintings on canvas paper and recently I've started actually just using my iPad to do the color studies so I can kind of play around with how I want to do things you know what does it look like if this is green or if this is blue or it gets a little OCD uh, but it it's it feels necessary to me still and then I'll also usually invent the face too um, do you paint so, every day yeah. Do I paint every day? I paint maybe five days, like like a job, you know, five days a week. And you, do you give yourself set hours in the studio? It's not super regimented. Like I have to be here at this time and I have to leave at that time. But you sort of know if you put in a day's work or not. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, I think I want to go and go grocery shopping now. But it's like, maybe we need to push a little harder, you know, two more hours or something. Mm-hmm. do you what listen to music in the studio yeah. or sometimes i'll listen to podcasts a lot too talk art. Um, yeah yeah no yeah, i really so listen to listen like 70 yeah so many times yeah, yeah. Talk <laughs> what, what is it like for you because you're you're selling a lot of work i mean me and you hung out recently at, you came to nabot miller's opening that we had at mm. 1969 gallery and you were telling me that you'd quit your teaching job and you'd sold a lot of paintings recently which allowed you to quit that job but these, talking to you, these feel like very personal experiences, even though they are fictional tellings, they are based on true experiences. What, how do you feel about these going out in the world and, and selling work and be, leaving your studio bare and starting on a whole new body of work again? 
there are certain paintings that are more personal than others. Uh, I do have a couple in my apartment that I don't think I'll ever let go. But in general, I make them to be in the world. Uh, so, and then if, if when they leave, if there's something about that painting that I'm still really in love with, usually elements of that painting will echo in something that I make within the next year. So I feel like it's still kind of with me. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to, to see them go out, especially to like a, a caring, respectful home. Uh, but an empty studio is daunting. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying uh, yeah. right now there's a massive yeah. uh black kind of monochrome work you're you've got in there are you working yeah. towards a show now and do you who, who do you work with like who you represented by is that something you're looking for or yeah i'm i'm uh not represented by anybody so eventually i would i would love to be um but i am waiting you know for the right for what i feel is right right for me Mm. Um, I, I'm not the kind of artist that can just make a painting in a day. You know, my process is kind of specific. Like I really think about the image and how I want to do it and the color and I paint in a lot of layers. It's many, many sessions for each painting. So I, I want to just make sure I'm, I'm working with somebody who understands my process. Mm. Yeah. I heard you recently have referenced the wizard of oz in your work and we've used the friends of dorothy before in the podcast um can you talk a bit about why you chose that reference for under the rainbow is that is that was that an element of camp again i feel like it made so much sense to me when i titled the painting <laughs> and it makes less <laughs> sense now <laughs> but um i i think I, I titled it under the rainbow as if it was this, and the figure was in this sort of, it looked like they were experiencing this sort of shameful, or, or there was an angst to the figure, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as, as if they, they were waiting to go over the rainbow to get to that kind of place. Mm. Um, so it was just kind of a, a little... They were waiting for the fairy to get to Fire Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you said fairy. You meant fairy. That's what that's what people call it. The it's fairy, both. fairy. Oh, sure. the fairy. It is, oh, I it's, see. It's, it's the, see. That's I'm what the boat thinking. is. Yeah, it makes it oh. makes total sense for the narrative of the island. Anyway, so you're not a massive like Wizard of Oz fan when you were growing up or something? No, I liked the movie, but I'm not. I'm not like obsessed with yeah, it. Yeah, that's one thing to check. <laughs> what is um? So what is upcoming for you? What are you planning on or working on or what is the hopes and dreams? <laughs> hopes and dreams um i mean i'm 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 making work right now uh, i have a, a several paintings going in the studio and i don't really have any deadlines right now so i'm just kind of enjoying doing what i want and i feel like i'm i'm making a lot of work that's a continuation of what i did in in my solo show that just came down um at the beginning of this summer what was that like that was in notting hill wasn't it in it was in Notting Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me to London for the first time. And it was great. I mean, it, it was it was really great to see the work all together and in context. And it was also kind of dramatic because the in December, the end of December, so the show opened in May, but in December there was this really intense fire that happened in my studio building. 
and uh, it burned for three days. Like two people uh, lost their lives in the fire. Oh my god! And there was this. Um, there was a, a very real chance that I was not going to get the work out. Um, so, it, eventually, I did, and everything was okay. Um, but you know, it it was the work for the show was all in there. So it's like there wouldn't have been, there wasn't going to be a show if they mm-hmm. condemned the building and, and never let any of us in. You know, they fenced the building off. They changed the locks. Uh, someone tried to get in and they got arrested. Um, we, it, was, it was really intense. And, and it was five weeks of not knowing if, if I was ever going to get in to get the work. And that was a crazy, crazy roller coaster. Uh, and I was in that building for nine and a half years. So it really felt like that space was taken from me and it was really sad. Um, but so making it then to this finish line for the show and being able to, to go to London, because also, you know, the pandemic is still happening and traveling is, you know, can still be really complicated. So it, it just felt extra sweet and victorious to be able to to go and and see all the painting survive that's incredible i mean how fortunate was that i'm very lucky i mean the i my studio was on the fifth floor the fire reached the third floor uh the sprinklers in my part of the building never went off which is a part of what helped keep the painting safe um yeah god that must have been such a relief when you could have gone back in and you open the door and you're like my babies are all safe. They're all oh, I, there. I wept. Oh, yeah, it was really intense. It's also like the loss of life as well. It's like I mean, so well, yeah, massive. Like one day you go to the studio, the next day you don't. What was it? So what caused it? Do Do, do you know? So tragic. It's unclear. Um, uh, the building takes up the whole block, so it's a huge complex. And they did do an investigation because people died. So there was a. Um, a federal investigation mm. and they ruled it ultimately an accident. Um, and there's, you know, there's rumors and there's, you know, maybe one tenant on the ground level wasn't storing certain chemicals properly and that accelerated it. But I don't think there are any real facts that I really have about it, but basically it started uh, a, very, very late on a Sunday. I went to the studio on a Monday to go work. It's Monday morning. There's all these fire trucks mm, and people girls. are just standing outside the building. And I thought it was like a false alarm because that actually happens all the time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, when do you think we'll be able to go back in the building? And then I walked around the other side of the building and it was just annihilated. And uh, I, you know, I was like, oh, this is a, a big deal. And they put the fire out that night. Um, and then the next day, it reignited, <gasps> and then it burned for over two more days. No. Uh, and then, w- and then when it reignited, then it started to really creep closer and closer to my studio. So, I, like, we were all just standing outside of the building, like, um, watching it. God, that's horrific. God, I'm so sorry. And, and now that building is just going to get turned into condos with like a Whole Foods at the base. Oh. which is like it's just it's just shitty it's depressing yeah. but yeah, amazing that you got to london in so that's with tame Magronia gallery he's a great uh young 
incredibly passionate and vibrant um, dealer who constantly ha- is looking at art, constantly has uh, shows with really exciting, like international emerging artists. He's, he's a great champion for that. What was it like working with him? And what did you find in London art-wise that you were like inspired by? And did you like the light in London? Because it isn't, it's something you seem to mention a lot and it isn't something that people in the UK mention a lot as being you know, the beauty of London <laughs> is the light. So first of all, when I was in London, there was unusual weather. Like the sun was out a lot. It really only rained once. Like I was, I was there for six nights. It only rained once. Um, and my, some, some friends came with me and we kind of joked that we got color while we were in London, just walking around. Uh, It was so, it was so bizarre. The UK is getting so hot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And it wasn't super hot yet cause it was May. So it was just actually really lovely. Uh, t- yeah. T- and t- Tamor, Tamor is great. Uh, he, we, you know, we, we met through Instagram, you know, that's kind of how we were talking. And again, you know, Instagram has been really helpful and I felt like he got, he got my work and, and what I was doing and, he was really good about not micromanaging like what I was making and kind of letting me stick with my vision. And uh, yeah, him and everyone at the gallery was, they were really great to work with. It was Did a you beautiful installation as well. Thank you. The, okay. The, the National Gallery yeah. in London, I, it's like the best museum I've ever been to. I mean, it blew me away. I was so in awe of it. I could, I just couldn't, I cannot wait to go back. And it's, first of all, it's just beautiful. Like the mm-hmm. skylights and the, the, the wallpaper or the fabric on the walls. And then the way that it, it's just so rich and the way it's curated. I mean, the Rubens room, that was like the first room I walked into. Like I've been, there are paintings there I've been thinking about for 15 years. So I was oh, wow. gagged. Um, I really was gagged. And then the, the Rembrandt room where it starts with a younger self portrait and then the older one is in the corner. When I got to the older one, I totally cried because the look in his eyes is so different in that older one and the, the, the young self portrait. And then I think the, the other self portrait there is like a year before he died um, there was such a story. And then all of his paintings in between those two self portraits, like it, it got me. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love your emotions, Kyle. I, know. <laughs> I also so just, cute. I love your kind of passion for paint, you know, as well. And you really feel it in your paintings. Like if you think about, um, the one with the disco ball, where there's like a group of people, what could be a nightclub or something, and somebody's got like a disco ball almost like as their body or something. And just that that use of light in your paintings. Can you speak a bit about the joy of the materiality for you? Because you paint in oil, often on linen. Yeah. But what what is it about painting? Because your paintings have so many different paint types, like, sorry, ways of painting within mm. one tiny canvas, mm. like lots of different techniques that you kind of almost um, are able to, explore through the different um figurative elements of it well i think paint's sexy 
mean, I, I, it's just this colored goop, right? It's, it's color, which is this timeless entity. There's no beginning and no end made material so you can manipulate it. And I think color is a huge part of why I'm attracted to painting. And I feel like with oil painting, I can really control what I'm doing with the color. And I love the layering of oil painting. Like once you, you work it for a few sessions, something really starts to happen. And then the, the materiality of it, just being able to kind of slap a paintbrush around and then all of a sudden it's a tree. Um, or there's something so satisfying about just like that lick of a brushstroke that becomes that glowing highlight that you spent weeks setting up that moment so that that brushstroke could be that pop of highlight is magical to me. Um, I don't know. My body wants to do it. Like mm -hmm. I, I just love, I love the, like the mixing of the color. Like I could mix color all day and then um, kind of just smearing the brush around. I don't know. There's a certain energy to it that I, that I just love. Are there certain paints and brushes that you rely on brands or type of brush? I, I try, I try to use pretty good quality paint because it does affect, you know, the pigmentation. Uh, so I'll use, you know, like old Holland or Williamsburg. Uh, there's also a small family owned company named Vasari that uh, Lisa Uscavage told me about. And they had a, sh I don't know if they still have it, but they, they had a showroom in a, a building in Chelsea that you could go to. And they have this like huge pallet table, a big glass pallet table with all of the, their tubes there. And you could actually like play with the paint and mix it around. So cool. It was such a luxurious paint shopping experience, um, but it, they're very expensive, but they're, they're, they're really heavily pigmented and, um, gorgeous that's like getting makeup at like uh harrods you go in that's there and get exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 elevated, yeah isn't it yeah try yeah. on the different lipsticks um, do you see your works as time capsules because i was thinking a lot about that as well because for me there's moments of the last few years even just within my wardrobe which i see in your paintings like the kind of tie-dye you know everyone was doing those tie-dye kind of cashmere jumpers there's been all this these kind of not not trends but but themes within culture that seem to be time capsules if, even if you look back to your earlier work like 2011 2012 when you're still studying at yale there's like these moments which i distinctly remember is that and i love that about art that it can you know be of its time mm -hmm. is that something you think about i think a lot about timelessness mm. um i i typically try to actually avoid too many markers of a specific time time right um but with, but with the tie-dye I think a few things inspired the tie dye. I mean, one when I was a kid, I was obsessed with tie dye. Yeah, so me too. it was part. Yeah, it was like you know, I'm always thinking about like let's nurture the inner child, right? So it was kind of a way for me for me to play with him. And also in in the pandemic, a friend of mine, and I think this happened with a lot of people, started making tie dye. You yeah, know, people did. discovered their like <laughs> pandemic craft or a little endeavor. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So she she started getting really good at it, right? And, and she has a corporate job, and I was like, um, I was like, Gabby, you kind of have a full blown artistic practice at this point. <laughs> like, you're every weekend you're making like pounds worth of tie dye. Uh, so I, I was sort of seeing it a lot, and it felt like it 
kind of came back in, into popularity, mm. uh, which was interesting to me. Um, is it nice to paint tie-dye? Yes, it is. I actually, when I was teaching, I really was like, oh, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make, I'm going to have a still life where I'm just going to hang like a, a tie-dyed shirt. And they're just, the students are going to have to paint that. But I was like, I think if I asked the students to do that, they would call the police. And so I am just, I think I actually just want to make this painting. So I'm just going to do it. And that's how the tie-dye started. I think um, it was actually that as the marker for, for the dying girls, your thing. I just got so much tie-dye. I even became friends with my fanway, who's a amazing. Um, she does tie-dye and like almost like marbled denim and stuff she's mad she did a collab with Stella McCartney last year and um we we text a lot and she listens to talk art and we, we've become friends and I'm just obsessed with that and even Jonathan Anderson like with Loewe he did all his I'm wearing it now look oh yeah, the polis, yeah, yeah. I wore it for you oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but I don't know I just feel like it's something that I don't know I just love in your painting so much um, before we get on to our last questions you did just mention yeah. Lucy Scavage who um you know people can't help but make comparisons with your work and see similarities in your practices but you're actually friends with Lisa and you two are able to uh talk about art together and and the process and materiality well I was able to work with her in graduate school oh wow uh, so this was yeah her right? at, yeah, her yeah. and her husband Matt Fay. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when that's when I met her. And then, I mean, we, you know, I've, I've we kept in touch for a little after that. I've run into her here and there, but I actually haven't talked to her. Um, I think since before the pandemic. Um, but I mean, Lisa, I obviously love her work. Um, she was great to have in my studio in grad school. I mean, she just spoke so directly to me and so clearly, and I feel like I was able to really learn a lot from her um, really quickly. So she, she was, she was really important for me. And I think as an artist, she's really inspiring. Yeah. She's such a precise mind. I think she's got a clarity of vision and just directness that's so refreshing and she's, I've never met anyone like her. And we did an interview twice now with her. One was about her friend, Jessie Murray and Jessie's paintings as well. I mean, her dedication to that um, memory and making sure people know about Jessie's work, but also so many artists. And she, she was, she, she's there at the beginning of so many people's careers, it seems, because mm. she's a real champion of painting, you know, and I just, I adore her. I think she's one of the great minds, actually. She's a brilliant, brilliant person. Agree. So... We're going to get on to our questions now. If Let's you could do an imaginary art heist, you could have any work of art in the world, what would it be and why? So I'm sort of torn between two. So there was this little Tiepolo study that was in the Yale Art Gallery that I would look at all the time in grad school. And it's, you know, maybe 12 inches high, right? And it's a little oval painting, but it's a little sketch. So it has these really quick little brush strokes, but they add up to be this, you know, like angels descending from the sky. And it's really epic and just this perfect effortless little economic painting. Um, but I also feel like living with that, it would constantly mock me. Um, because it's it's so perfect, right? It's like oh, it's like oh, I had a good day in the studio, and then you get home and like you look at that. It's like oh, wait a minute. It's like the same thing. It's like oh, I've been working out all winter, and then you get to Fire Island, and you're like oh, okay. Um, Who was the but, artist again? Did you say what was his name? Their name? Uh, Tiep Tiepolo. 
who and who was who was Tiepolo? This is an artist, like a an expressionist, like a. Is this another French artist? Because you mentioned uh, Boucher and Italian. Italian. Is yeah, he he's, Italian? he's Italian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, late Baroque. Okay. Very good. Um, yeah, and so I think I would I would really like an Agnes Pelton painting. Oh okay. wow. Um, yeah. So she, you know, I there was this big show at the Whitney, Mm. uh, the fall of 2020. So it was really like the Whitney had just opened, you know, every, you know, it's still the pandemic. People are wearing masks and whatnot. Uh, but that show blew me away. Um, I think it was called desert transcendentalist. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they're, they're so dreamy and she's, you know, they're very spiritual and she's playing with color. And I feel like you could just kind of dream in these landscapes and spaces. Yeah, they're, that she's, they're transcendent. Aren't they? There's a kind of Georgia O'Keeffe yeah. sort of energy mm-hmm. to them as well. Absolutely. Oh, but wow. also like Hil- Hilmar F. Klimt, there's almost some sort of yes. connection yeah. there for some reason, like the spirituality element of it, I think. And just yeah, and the, the Hilmar F. Klimt show was like mm-hmm. just a year before right. the Agnes Pelton. So yeah, there's definitely um, a a connection. So the Agnes wouldn't mock you, but the Tiepolo would. (laughs) Tiepolo would mock me. Yeah. Right. Um, Agnes Pelton would, I think, just straight up inspire me in in many ways. Mm. And I feel like I could even just stare at it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like me- even just meditate anxiety. staring at it or something. Yeah, yeah. good. I love yeah. the idea that so- somebody from the 1700s could mock you. It's so genius. <laughs> it's like all the way back there. Um, the other question yeah. we ask every guest is what is your favorite color? So as a painter, like I really love them all. But as a person, I'm really drawn to like a darker earthy green like Rob, actually, kind of similar to the green in your shirt, right? Honestly, now. I just wore uh, this for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, but I feel like I like I'm up. I'm apartment hunting right now, and wherever I land, I definitely want to paint a room green. Um, and I feel like that, like a dark green. I feel like that's also a color that I like to wear. I feel like it looks good on me. Um, We've both got dark so. hair, though. That's why. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and beards. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the thing. If you've got dark hair and a beard, you look good in dark green. You look good in dark green. Russell yeah. just looks baffled and disinterested. No, no. I was just thinking, picturing <laughs> this room all in like a, a kind of farum ball, olive green or a forest green. And it feels quite mm. Victorian. It makes me think mm. of a parlor room. I can imagine all your characters hanging out in there. Mm. Yeah, know, I love that. Reading books on Fire Island. Um, <laughs> Tom Bianchi Polaroids. Exactly. What is the best advice you have ever had when it comes to your art? And what advice would you give others? Uh, one thing that Peter Haley said in grad school to us, and he said it so matter of factly, was, you know, you only need 20% of people to like your work to have a career. And I think that's that's pretty good, <laughs> pretty good advice because I think you can really freak out about like, oh, well, not everybody, you know, I'm not in this or I'm not in that. Or it's like, you don't need everybody to be on your team in order to, to have a career. That's something I think about. Yeah. And if I could say something, I guess, like, I think it's also important to take your own advice. Like I noticed when I was teaching, I would give students advice and then I would be in my studio and I'd be like, 
I'm not even following my own advice. Like, or, or, or if I would get stuck with a painting, sometimes it helps me to pull myself out of myself and be like, well, if this was a student painting, what would you say to it? You know? And I think as an exercise that helps give me clarity. Um, so yeah, critique your, your own work. You kind of like remove yourself from it and able to critique your own imagery. Yeah. I mean, it just, I think in, in times of frustration, I think, um, what, you know, when you're giving someone advice on a painting or just in their life, like, I feel like you, you really trust what you're saying, you know, but sometimes when it comes to yourself, maybe you don't as much. So I, I like to think about, well, if this was someone else, what would I say to them? Or if this was someone else's painting, you know, what would I, how would I really read it? What feedback would I give them? And that can help me kind of reenter. Um, oh, that's a really specific kind of, kind of answer. No, I like that. I mean, that to have the ability to remove yourself from one's own art and look at it with a critical eye, I guess, will push you forwards. If you're always in love with your work and satisfied, then it's not going to push you somewhere uncomfortable, which is what, as artists, we all have to do. We all have to put ourselves in vulnerable, uncomfortable positions to find out what the next story is that we want to tell. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an exercise of constantly making yourself vulnerable over and over and over again. A friend of mine told me recently, if you don't do that and you don't make yourself vulnerable or you don't scare yourself, whether it be like, an, you know, in any ambition you have for your life, mm-hmm. they were just like, you'll be no one. <laughs> I was like terrified. I was like, oh my God. It's horrifying. What does that mean? Yeah. I know, it's horrifying. When yeah. you're going to follow that advice then, oh, Rob? <laughs> you are well, no I, one. Yeah, you know me, I'm always moving, babes. Yeah, always, always moving babes. Yeah, <laughs> um, always vulnerable. I was also babes. thinking, you know, the uh, the black painting you made, and you were talking about that shyness and the way you have to almost really look at it. Mm. It got me thinking about one of Maureen Paley's artists, Micah Shurel, who does those black paintings with tiny bits of oil paint that actually do create bodies and figures, but they're done in a very abstract way. Mm. And there's also these white ones which could look like religious paintings, but actually there's nothing there but just dots of paint. Mm. They're really they're they're quite amazing. I'd forgotten about her. I was trying to think of her name the whole way through this. Oh my God, it's been so good to meet you properly. Finally, <laughs> finally, Carl. Thank I'm you so much fan. for coming on. And I love what you do so much. I hope more Thank people so discover much. your work through listening to your incredibly sensitive answers. I and I love that you're so sensitive. Never change. We love it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And hopefully we get to hang out very soon, everybody. Not yeah, everybody yeah. actually, just us three. <laughs> everybody listening. <laughs> yeah. we, we all hang out together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For everyone listening, you can go to uh, Kyle's Instagram and reach out and tell him how brilliant he is. Uh, what's your Instagram, Kyle? My Instagram uh, is K-Y-L-E-F-Y-L-E-S, uh, Kyle Files. Oh yeah, Kyle Files. What, do you, what yeah. do you feel about, you know, if you don't have a gallery, you haven't got that uh, person helping you place your artworks. How do you feel about people DMing you to buy art? How do you navigate that? Well, I, I think I think it was a process to kind of figure that out in the beginning. I it um, at first it was really exciting because all of a sudden people are interested in you. Um, but then I, I, I learned after a little bit that I do need to have kind of a little bit of, of a distance. Um, and it, it is really helpful having someone who can kind of be a filter and help decide really what's best for you 
in uh, for you know for you as the artist in terms of who to, who the work should go to and things like that um, do you have someone like that then that you work with well i i you know i have a good relationship with tamor so we you know we he definitely um you know i do have a couple things uh, you know available through him and we we are going to do an uh, a group show together so yeah so i i i have him it's good so, i think for artists to be able to actually focus on what their passion is which is not selling art or worrying yeah, about yeah. where Business. things are being placed yeah. and you can of course have a, a discussion with a gallery and whatever and work out where you want things to be placed but it's more like you actually need to focus on what matters to you which is making the work and i think having the distractions it's obviously a, a thing that happens you just sometimes have to do everything when you're beginning your career and in a way hopefully eventually it'll you know change but um you know, for young artists as they grow, they'll get a gallery or other people to help them. But, but I do think that's the main thing, isn't it? It's about being able to focus on your work. Yeah, um, I mean, ideally, I would just be be focusing on on my work, which for the most part, I, I kind of do get to do right now. Amazing. Before we go, can I ask one last yeah. question? What happens to Fire sure. Islands in the winter? It, for the most part, it, it evacuates. Um, you know, there's only one. The, you have to take a ferry to get there. Uh, the the ferry, I think at a certain point goes out like only a handful of times per week. There's also uh, a, a grocery store there that shuts down uh, after a certain point in the year. So you have to get your groceries from the mainland. Uh, it's just not really, no one's really there. So it, it's for the most part emptied out. You have to be quite a bougie person then with a helicopter and a bit like Hol- Holston, whatever his name was, the um, yeah. the fashion yeah, designer. Yeah. He would just be but like, it, it, "I'm going to fly a jet and get some groceries." It would be a bit yeah. like that. Russell Tony. It would be so lonely out there. It's kind of nice. Yeah, that. Sol- I, know, I can I imagine that thinking, solitude being something know, quite. That's what I think. I want to go there in the winter, and I want to see paintings <laughs> of yours there in the winter. Just before you go, another question: Are you going back to Fire Island for the rest of the summer? I, I'm going back tomorrow. That, of course, you are. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Well, this has been incredible. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Kyle, for we'll coming on. We'll be back on. very soon. Thank Take you. Thanks, yeah. Kyle. Thanks Bye. for listening. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.